Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here from Lockdown outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. It is a very special Four Speed Ahead. Uh, we are, I'm in house arrest. Matt, you are also on house arrest. Matt Silver is the founder of Forager, which is involved in cross border transportation. Matt, welcome to Four Speed Ahead, uh, house arrest style. How are you doing? I'm good. A little stir crazy being in the same house every day or the same apartment rather. Um, and, and my, uh, one coworker that shares an office with me is Meatball, uh, our dog. And then my wife's got a separate office in here. So it's a little tight, but it's good. Now you have been on lockdown or, uh, uh, away from the office for how long? We, we moved everyone to remote on, I think March 12th. So a week and a half ago, roughly, um, pretty smooth transition, relatively speaking. People are getting so crazy being at home every day, but we're keeping kind of the cultural side of things alive with uh, virtual happy hours and um, just getting on Zoom and on uh, on Slack a lot. How does virtual happy hour work? You, you all get together and have a beer and just shoot the shit? Yeah, everyone jumps into a Zoom room. You can you can add a lot of people in one room at a time and... Um, you know, we invited a couple outside people the first time that we did this. It was fun. It starts off with maybe 20, 25, 30 people, which, um, you know, we have about 35 people right now total, uh, or getting closer to 40, but, um, starts with most of the people and people stay and they keep pouring more drinks. And then some people tail off a little bit and maybe you share the zoom link with one or two friends or family outside the group and, Starts to get interesting. I was, I'm going to send you a link for the next one that we do. <laughs> I got invited to my first virtual uh, happy hour for tomorrow. Uh, one of our venture VCs is having one, I guess, for their friends and of the fun. Uh, so we'll see. That will be my first experience. We have not done that at Freight Waves. Uh, you know, we have a, a slightly larger group, so I don't know how that would work, but we'll, we we may have to try that. It'd be kind of cool. I'll send it so, to a few of you guys if you want to join on uh, on Friday. I'm sure JP, JP would love to be, uh, at times we feel like he works for the Silvers more than he does great waves, it feels like, but, uh, uh, he's like the, uh, the, the brother you didn't know you had. So, uh, but I want to get into this a lot, a lot of stuff's happening. Uh, you and I, uh, have, have talked, uh, offline about a lot of the things that are taking place in freight, but you got big news this week. Uh, you guys uh, have announced a financing, which would love to hear a little bit about that. Uh, but but it's an interesting time to actually have raised capital. It seems like uh, a lot of VCs are pulling uh, deals and term sheets and uh, basically reneging on some of the agreements. I'd love to hear what that process was like for you guys. Sure. So we, we started the process a few months ago. We um, our, our financing to date has been, uh, you know, strategic initially with TFI, um, and they're based up in Quebec, and we were going to Florida and New York for those conversations. Uh, you've got Chicago Ventures coming in last summer, Midwest firm. We didn't talk to any firms out west or, or on the east coast for that matter at that point either. We were local, and so starting off the process at the end of last year, starting to go out to the Valley and out to New York, and to have some of these conversations just kind of a get to know you process initially, but kind of like speed dating, it's like four or five meetings a day and you're just churning through telling the same story over and over again. By the end of it, we got to the point where, uh, you know, it, it started to narrow down and we started to find the right people that we really enjoyed talking to. 
and uh, ultimately landed on USVP um, a, a little bit ago that we decided to move forward with. And um, the process came to came together pretty quickly. They came and met with us, met our team, saw our office while we still had a, a physical office, and it really it put us in a good position to to really start growing. And so um, USVP is the firm. They're uh, they're leading. It's a ten million dollar round. Uh, Chicago Ventures is participating, and Soma Capital is as well. And so we've got uh, with USVP, you get a team of of engineers and doctors. To be quite honest, they focus on two core uh, two core uh, investment strategies. One is on um, on IT or enterprise software, and one is in uh, healthcare. And so they've done a couple other deals with Chicago Ventures previously, and. Um, there's a great relationship between our new board member and our existing board member. And so uh, it, it makes for a really, really exciting time to be able to close out this round and to be able to start um, putting kind of all the pieces together that we've been trying to do. And this is U.S. Venture Partners, uh, which based in the, in the Valley, uh, and they put, you said $10 million? Yes. They're, they're leading with, uh, with a $7.5 million check, um, and the rest of the round is filled out with Chicago Ventures, uh, Soma Capital and a couple other, uh, couple other smaller investments. Uh, as a, as an early stage company, you guys have some revenues, uh, but you're still in the, you know, you're, was this a Series A? Is that what you guys would classify it as? Yeah. So what is that like right now with COVID-19 lockdown? Uh, what, what's, what is that like? Um, okay. So when it, when it comes to kind of the raise process and everything, um, and with what's going on with coronavirus, um, we first of all we went out with a you know a year's worth of business we've added a lot of enterprise customers a lot of middle market customers we've got revenue we've got a business that's moving we've got a process and we've got technology and so and the technology that we have has product market fit there's people using it and so the initial part of this conversation people are trying to differentiate between us and some of the other logistics tech companies out there they, but, that we all know, like an Uber Freight or a Convoy um, or a Transfix. And um, we started to – we navigated through those questions, and we are truly building something that's a lot different than what those guys are doing. But when it came down to what's going on with coronavirus, there was a um, – the initial questions that came up were what was going to happen to our business and how are we going to survive that and how are we going to deal with all of that. And first off, the concerns were around what was coming out of China at the time. So um, everybody was worried about shipments coming from China to the U.S. We're not doing drayage. We're not doing anything in the U.S. and domestic. And so a lot of our freight wasn't really impacted by by the initial part of this whole thing. And um, we didn't see a drop in volume. More recently, over the last few weeks, obviously, as things hit the U.S. and hit kind of a global scale, we started to see a little bit of volume shift, and we started to see – uh, our automotive stopped over the last week, and so some of our automotive customers have stopped for the, at least the next few weeks, potentially the next quarter. Um, but on the other side, we've got some food and beverage customers that have significantly increased the number of shipments that they're shipping out of Mexico and Canada to where we're seeing our, our kind of our concentration on, on industries have shifted trans- uh, significantly kind of during this whole process. So, Matt, is this, you know, I've had a number of conversations. There seems to be a lot of disagreement and confusion, a lack of awareness. Uh, you know, the historical models are completely breaking down right now for anybody. And and really, it's anybody's guess as to what the next week or the next couple of weeks hold. Uh, 
But we sell massive amounts of volume in, in our sonar data, which tracks the broader market. We've seen massive amounts of just freight moving through the system. The question is going to be what happens in a few weeks. And I'd like to get your perspective. Do you think that volumes are going to drop significantly? Are you bullish? Are you bearish? Where's your head at uh, right now in terms of, of what's going to happen, say, in mid-April? The volume is going to keep going up for certain industries, and it's going to it's going to be dead for other industries. So, like um, the products that people don't need to buy right now, like TVs, washers and dryers, um, some electronics are going to slow down or completely come to a halt. Automotive is stopped right now. All the major OEMs have already announced they've shut down. They may start building, you know, respirators and masks for manufacturing those for what's going on right now, and so. We could see, uh, we could see some, a volume uptick from those shippers, but their sourcing is going to be from different spots than where they're, where they're normally buying product from. Um, food and beverage, keeping grocery stores stocked are going to continue to grow up. So I think volume is going to go up in general with, um, with what's going on or more importantly, I think capacity will tighten because we'll see drivers that are, are going to start to get sick potentially. Um, we're going to see certain drivers that don't want to go to certain parts of the country. We've had a lot of carriers recently say that they don't want to deliver freight to California right now. Uh, and I imagine a lot of carriers don't want to go into New York right now. So there's certain areas that they won't go into. Pennsylvania shutting down those truck stops causes a lot of issues for capacity. So volume is going to go up. You guys have a way better insight into, into volume with sonar. Um, I would say from the capacity standpoint, though, it'll just tighten because of the fear that's going on right now. Yeah, my I'm going to make prediction. This is uh, March. Uh, this will be March 27th in two days when this is published on Friday. So I can be held to these predictions because I'm time stamping it right now. My prediction is April. We're going to see a significant drop off in freight. I mean, the, the part that concerns me is 40 percent of the economy is completely shut down. Manufacturing autos, aircraft uh, is, is a big piece of it. Uh, you know, even the energy markets, uh, in terms of any speculation for oil well drilling, chemicals, all the industrial goods are basically going to zero. Retail, except for e-commerce, as you mentioned, certain retail items, people aren't buying washing machines and other things. So I think we're going to see a significant drop off. My prediction is uh, right now we're at uh, the OTBI index, which is our volume index, is over 12,000. I think it's going to drop below 9,000 by mid-April. That's my prediction. Uh, we'll see if I'm right, and we'll see if I'm wrong in terms of whether volumes increase. So that's the bet for today. But I want to get into what does this all mean? We, we've seen significant changes. You know, you're working from home. I'm working from home. Uh, I guess the question is if it's if this is a longer term shutdown, then society does start to change and it becomes more permanent because people get used to these things. But I'm wondering, what is your prediction for, you know, the next year uh, sitting right here in terms of just what do you think is going to happen? So I think I'm going to take this uh, to kind of to talk about technology, to talk about the world in general and not specifically logistics for a second, although it does also touch on logistics. I think there's going to be a lot of M&A in general. We're going to see businesses that are going to collapse or, or just uh, at this point, they're going to have to shut down. Uh, there's certain companies that will be able to survive this. Um, the logistics industry as a whole is pretty resilient to recessions. Um, it's, you know, everybody still needs the stuff that's shipping right now. And even with your prediction about the volume dropping, 
a lot of a lot of 3PLs, a lot of trucking companies will live through this. Um, we already saw uh, Anthem get acquired by Blue Grace recently. Um, uh, Costco just acquired Sears' logistics business. Uh, we're, we might see other big box companies or some of these other big shippers buy a logistics company at some point in the near future. Maybe Amazon goes and scoops someone up like Lyft. Maybe Amazon could go get Lyft and take all of their drivers and convert their drivers that are doing um, normally moving people around, and all of a sudden you have all these people that don't want to leave their house. Uh, maybe all those drivers become delivery drivers for Amazon, and they're delivering packages, and they're delivering groceries. And it turns into kind of a postal service style or a milk run style where you've got the same Lyft driver that's hitting every single one of your doorsteps to drop off your groceries and your packages for that day. So we could see some serious M&A. We'll see a lot of talent coming out of the market, um, which is unfortunate for the people that that's happening to. But at the same time, um, my hope, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of other businesses like yours are hoping to be able to be a landing spot for at least some of those people. So um, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to change. There's going to be probably some really incredible businesses that are born out of what's going on right now. Uh, someone's going to think about a different way to do something. Um, imagine if you own stock in like Zoom two months ago and how that's doing right now. Uh, and Slack is doing really well because everybody's using Slack. Um, people are using new types of technology to uh, manage their business, to live their daily life. Uh, I'm hearing about all sorts of people that are, you know, we're using Zoom internally at, at, with work and for external conversations with customers. But we're also, uh, I'm hearing a lot of our people are using it to talk to their families. So there's going to be new businesses that I'm kind of excited to see what comes out of it. Um, I saw something on Twitter the other day where uh, someone asked about how doctors can better communicate across the entire world and how they can share information, how they can cut through all of the kind of, uh, all of the mess that you see on Twitter or online that's more public. How do they get all of their information and all of the communication done in a succinct way where they can all collaborate, share information, share things that might help them solve this virus and help work together as a global team. And so what does that technology look like? Has somebody built it? If they haven't built it yet, who's going to build that? There is some upside uh, in government regulations. Uh, there's a, there's a desire by government for right for right rightfully so to get rid of some of these burdens and regulations. You know, teledoctoring, telemedicine uh, was was even though it was allowed, there was a lot of regulations that that had to con they had to contend with across state borders. Uh, a lot of insurance companies, some would offer, so others didn't. We're, so we're seeing that go away. We're even seeing things like alcohol delivery, as you can get mixed cocktails delivered to your house in places like Texas. Uh, because they're trying to encourage people to stay home. Um, you know, one of my favorite restaurants here in Chattanooga, the Frick Capital, or I will say the gig internet capital of, of the United <laughs> States. That is a fact, Matt. We're getting to that a little bit later is whether Chattanooga is going to win out the work from home revolution. I think it does. I think it beats Chicago. We'll talk about that in a minute. But before we do, there is a restaurant in Chattanooga called Aaliyah, which is a, uh, you know, if, if, if we had a four or five star restaurant in Chattanooga, we don't have as many of those here as you have in Chicago, but it's one of our finer uh, dining places. They've started offering curbside. My wife and I, with a new baby, have not been able to go out to many dinners lately, so it's sort of nice that our favorite restaurant now is offering curbside. I hope they keep that. I hope this becomes a permanent movement, and I do think we'll start to see a shift uh, in how people are delivered. I want to touch on something real quick. You said Amazon buying Lyft. I, you know, that doesn't fit the pattern of Amazon. They tend to build things organically. They could have very well bought 
you know, a coyote a couple of years back or, or could have bought a, they could have bought FedEx or they could have bought any of the logistics companies, name it, C.H. Robinson, whomever. They don't buy yeah, of things that they can build. My guess is they would probably just as well build it as buy it. But we could see a lot of M&A. We could see a lot of stuff happening. I'm curious on the tech side of things where you sit, you've mentioned Convoy, you mentioned Transfix, you've mentioned Uber Freight. I'm curious, what happens with the venture cycle from your perspective? These brokerage businesses that have maybe not just the, maybe not just Convoy, but some of the other sort of second tier players out there. What what happens to their businesses? Do they are they going to survive intact, or or do you think there's going to be consolidation of the digital players? It part of it depends on how much their investors love them. Um, or, or believe in what they're doing. A lot of that does. Um, some of it depends on, on their business model. There's this whole race to the bottom that we're seeing in the U.S. market with, with those guys like Uber Freight and Convoy, and they have the capital to continue supporting it, especially Uber. Um, and so, as does Convoy with their, their most recent raise. And so, um, there's going to be the smaller guys that might be close to running out of cash, they might not have enough business to, to live off of their, their actual income or their revenue. Um, and so, yeah, we might see some smaller consolidation from some of these smaller guys, or they might just, they might run out of money. And a lot of the time, um, you know, I, I recently heard of a startup. I don't want to name names specifically, but I heard of a startup recently that was a logistics tech company that, that was basically out of money. And it got to the point where they were looking for investors. They were trying to sell their company. Um, Everyone that, that I heard from about that whole deal just wanted to wait until it fell apart and they could pick up their engineers and they could pick up the talented people and then not have to deal with the IP, not have to deal with paying back the investors, not have to deal with any sort of a price. So there's going to be this thought that like some companies might just wait for someone else to kind of just fall on their face and then scoop up the talent. Yeah, I think if you're, if it's a Chicago-based company that I'm thinking of then that went through that process, my my thinking is that uh, in that particular situation, we also start with Skorsky uh, or Skarsky. I, sorry, the uh, the autonomous trucking company, not Skorsky. That's helicopter. Skarsky. Skarsky. Yes, thank you. Uh, we saw that as well. Is is these companies don't have sufficient scale? They ran through a lot of capital, and they don't have anything special to really buy. Maybe you can get the technology, but if it's just technology, the heart, the challenge of that is, and I've looked at. We've looked at M&A transactions of companies that have platforms. The difficulty there is that it's very difficult to to do diligence on code and then talk about integration. If you're not buying, if you're just buying IP, it's just as easy, as you pointed out, to let the thing fail. And then you can go acquire the engineers that built it. And perhaps you can provide by the source code on pennies on the dollar. But there's no point in buying something particularly software businesses that don't have any type of distribution of scale because you're not really buying much. There's nothing special about it. Yeah, now that I think about it, and like, yeah, whether it was that opportunity or anything else, like if I had the opportunity right now to buy some smaller tech play that was doing something with like, let's say it was doing something with owner ops in the U.S., like the amount of time that would go into trying to integrate with that system and to try to figure out if the code lines up and to try to make all that work when it would probably make more sense for us to just try to build that at some point if we wanted to go that route, it doesn't make sense. Now, if I were running a big freight brokerage that had no tech, 
that was using off-the-shelf software, and I thought there was an opportunity to pick that tech up, especially if I had a TMS within it, and it was it was unique enough that it made sense to buy it, then yeah, that makes sense. So somebody, uh, like one of these bigger brokerages, like an Echo or a TQL that doesn't really have any unique technology, for them to go, uh, or proprietary technology, for them to go and buy a smaller digital freight brokerage, I would believe that, and, and I would... I'd be intrigued to do something like that if I were in that position. Um, but we've with merge a, tech, it wouldn't make sense. It's very difficult because we've looked at a couple of uh, – so we've, we've acquired two companies in the past year. We've looked at, gosh, a dozen others for potential acquisitions. I've gotten close on a couple, but for whatever reason, those deals didn't close. Uh, and they're all various reasons. Um, but I, I always struggled with companies uh, that had a piece of technology – that didn't scale and trying to get comfortable writing a check for those technologies because you're like, I am buying something that is not scaled that then I'm going to have to go bring engineering talent to go rebuild. And frankly, there's not that much mystery to the business anyways. There's not a whole lot I can learn about it. Now there was a couple of assets uh, that did have, that were technology centric, uh, but they had, you know, they had an interesting way that they were accumulating data. They had data history there was something of interest that goes beyond just a platform. I, I, I think the platform-only businesses are, are very, very difficult for, you know, for companies your size or my size to, uh, for us to buy because we're going to have to throw a dozen engineers to, to help repair it when it's just as simple to start with no tech debt and start on our existing framework and sort of incorporate these features into our businesses. Could you imagine if someone like Convoy, and I know that the, the dollars wouldn't line up for this, but... If, if someone like Convoy, who has this technology where they've, they've apparently automated the majority of booking or at least a lot of the brokerage component of matching and, and pricing, if they have the 10 years of historical data that someone like Coyote has, that would be ridiculously valuable. To be able to have 10 years worth of or 12 years of historical data of shipping where that's, that's already in a, in a solid database that they could then take and transform even if even if it was just to buy the data itself and potentially not the talent that came with it, but just have the data and the network and the customer base, that's got value. But just a piece of tech that doesn't have much to go with it. We looked at an acquisition really early on, and like the claim to fame was that they had a million and a half in like top line revenue that we thought I could 10x by calling those same customers. And like, great, I could probably just go call those same customers myself without having the <laughs> intro. And get the get the business, and then the tech turned out to like basically be a f- bunch of free code that didn't really like scale. So yeah, um, that's the I, we've been that's the, about that's that. the issue. I mean, I I think you know you mentioned Convoy or Uber Freight or or you know anybody that's in the freight brokerages, even yourself. There is a value. I could you know I don't think this is the style. I I don't know that Convoy or Dan has has made any acquisitions so, thus far. It's certainly Uber's made a couple of small tuck-ins when they first started. But it seems to me that that's not the, the way that those guys have built their businesses. Uh, I think they've made the same calculation. Why pay a massive premium when you you can take the same capital and perhaps buy the business and, and, and not have to deal with all the you know personnel and cultural issues you end up with? Because these are the way Convoy operates their business is very different than most freight brokerages, which in, in many ways has helped them scale really, really quick. Um, and it would be difficult, I think, to take a, 
uh, a different type business model and incorporate it where it's it's more people centric than tech centric. It's very difficult, I think, for them to make that leap. And I, I think they've already uh, have achieved enough scale and frankly have, as you mentioned, supportive investors that are letting them operate the business the way they operate it and scale the way they operate it without a lot of uh, traditional pressures that that perhaps other businesses would face. I think uh, from what I've kind of gathered in some of the conversations I've had over the last like six months, VCs don't love M&A. They do if it's their portfolio company getting bought because it's a great exit, but um, they don't love using cash to just buy other businesses. They hate pri- it. Private equity is all about the roll-ups. Like so private equity will fully buy into a roll-up. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy you mentioned that. Um, that was our experience as well. So we, we actually, uh, uh, have done two acquisitions and we have, we have the opportunity. I think we have 171 companies identified for potential acquisition. We're, we're tracking both in the media space, the data space. A lot of these businesses, some are larger, but a lot of them are sub 10 million dollars. They're, they're like the leader in a very small niche or a leader in, Maybe it's a media outlet that covers a certain segment of transportation. Perhaps it's a data business that covers that, that monitors a, a piece of data, but they're the leader in that. And what was interesting when we went out, we had two, we went on a road show. We went to New York and we went to, to San Francisco. And it was interesting. There was a very big bifurcation between what investors perceived our value was in the Valley in San Francisco, West Coast, and what investors perceived our value on the East Coast. And it was very, it was it was completely uh, is bifurcated. It was interesting because the West Coast investors hated anything that wasn't recurring revenue. Like just were like, why do you have a media business? I, I don't get it. Like, why are you investing in this media thing? Um, whereas the East Coast investors, what would be viewed as late stage private equity or late stage growth, late more early stage growth in private equity funds, late stage uh, uh, investors loved the idea of platforms. They love roll-ups and M&A and were willing to back, back that. And it was interesting because our CFO who comes from a traditional SaaS background. When we, when we would talk to certain types of investors that were more Silicon Valley tier one VCs, the, you know, household names that you all know, uh, he was like, these are the ones we should talk to. Those were the ones we performed least. He had a SaaS background. Whereas the ones that absolutely loved our business and loved what we were doing were on the late stage funds. But they approach business very different. The late stage funds, the private equity guys, don't like, they, they love M&A because it's a creative growth, but they hate high burn businesses. Whereas the West Coast guys can burn as much money as you can get your hands on as long as your recurring revenue business is, is growing. So it's an interesting bifurcation between how East and West Coast uh, investors think, I think. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that specifically with your business, and, and we kind of saw this a tiny bit, but I would assume a lot more with yours were like, you have media, you have data, you have, um, I think you've got some sort of subscription model, you've got uh, the, the events, like those are all different types of revenue streams, and I'm assuming you get different types of credit for that, and people start to like yeah. run through like, what's worth what, and it's like, you just sum it all up, and it's like, we do a hundred million dollars and they're like, okay, what is like maybe 30 of it's one and 20 is another yeah. Like they just break it I down. It, you know, it is, it is interesting. I think it's easier for most uh, venture investors to basically wipe out the non-recurring revenue businesses. Uh, so they basically, when they look at a, when they look at valuing our business, they say, what's truly subscription. So Sonar is our SaaS business. They can put a value on that. Maybe it's a you know 15 or 20% multiple will give you sort of benefit. Maybe it's a 10. Depends on the perspective of an investor. 
I think the ranges on on SaaS are like the lowest I ever heard was in a, on a fast growing SaaS business was eight, and the highest was uh, over twenty of revenue if you're growing really fast. Um, the problem is you're not getting credit. We didn't get credit for our media or events business, which are both profitable. The SaaS business is not profitable, and it's not intentionally it's not really profitable. So it's interesting how investors sort of perceive things. But if you go to a late stage you know, household name private equity fund or a big bank that everybody uh, in America knows, they love this sort of cohesive ecosystem and they're okay with M&A. In fact, they love M&A because they can view it as a creative. They're not okay with high burn. But if you go to the West Coast, it's all high burn. They can, You can burn millions of millions of dollars and they, they don't blink an eye as long as your recurring revenue uh, uh, is there. I think it's interesting because there are businesses in this space which are not truly recurring revenue businesses, but have traded at recurring revenue multiples. And I wonder if we don't see a reset of that. I, I, I don't know what your thoughts are there. It, it's going to be – there's so there's more of a focus on profitability right now, or at least understanding the path to profitability from VCs. Um, there is going to be a big reset in terms of valuation on everything. Like I heard, and you touched on this at the beginning of the call or the, the, the video, um, you know, there's the, the refactoring of valuations in the middle of a deal. There's people pulling term sheets right now. Um, when we come out on the other end of this, I'm really curious as to how people are going to value a business or how they're going to look at something. And so they're going to go and look at someone like us and let's say we don't quadruple our revenue from last year, this year, which like, if this doesn't happen, if we don't go into in the recession, like maybe we do get close to quadrupling our numbers. Um, but let's say that doesn't happen, but we do build our tech and we build our tech twice as fast as we would have previously if we were putting, if we were spreading our resources across product and engineering and, and sales and marketing and, and the supply side. And so if we kind of reallocate that pro, uh, the, the capital to the tech side, in our tech advances and we achieve more milestones on tech, but maybe our revenue number doesn't go quite as high. Do people go and look and say, why didn't you do that from year to year? Um, there was an article that was just posted, uh, I think on CNBC from one of the partners at Emergence Capital, um, who has done a little bit of investing in, in this industry and in, I think in P44. And, um, it talked about the fact that partners are telling their investments like, Hey, worry about surviving this year. Don't worry so much about about what your numbers look like. And so um, I'm curious as to like how people value things after this, because you know that right now, especially early stage, when a VC thinks about how they want to value a startup, whether it's pre-seed, seed, series A, a lot of the time right now, it's like, okay, I want to invest X amount of dollars. I want to own this percentage of the company. So that tells me what the total value of the company is going to be after the round closes. Whereas when a company gets acquired, they do the math based on the value of the, what their what their business is built, how much revenue they have, what their EBITDA is. Like they look at all of that, and so maybe things get a little bit closer from like the you know the the valuation like this to the EBITDA based valuation, and things get a little bit closer. But I I'm not the expert on valuation on that side of things at all. I I, I think as you go as you get into the alphabet, you go from A to B to C or whatever. Um, then then it the, the numbers do get a bit more rational. Even with us, uh, when we were uh, talking about later stage capital, they, like you described, they were taking the ones that did deep dive into the analysis would actually value segments of our business separately. So they'll put an X on events, track, trade it 
14 times EBITDA. Uh, uh, you know, uh, media businesses trade at seven times uh, EBITDA, and SaaS trades at 10 times revenue, whatever the number is. And so they they do put when you get in these later stage rounds, they put potential exits of what these businesses will look like in three to five years or during exit horizons, and then determine that's what they think the business is with their own sort of discount to your numbers. That's, you know, yep. they, they and how much, how much future investments going to be needed? Everyone, sure. a lot of people ask, like, are you going to go out and ask for a, are you going to try to do a $400 million round in a couple of years to be able to go buy up all the, all the volume in the entire network? And it's like, I don't want to leverage venture capital to subsidize our customers' transportation. I want to actually build technology that will help them save money and and be creative about how we build it, what are the revenue streams we can create for the business aside from just transportation, um, and get really creative in terms of what we actually build. And so the answer was no to trying to go out and do a $400 million round. I might be wrong. I might, we might do that in a few years. Like, <laughs> well, I'm going to record this and say, if you do a $400 million round, I'm going to play it back. That's why I just said that. <laughs> well, there you go. So mark, mark the date. We're going to say it, it was interesting. You said something I wanted to dive into, which is what's happening right now. So we're, we're, we're in this COVID-19 lockdown. You know, in six months, we'll have a different perspective than we have today. It is interesting. I've heard, you know, our board, my, the board that, that, uh, that is investors in Freightways, as well as other investors that either, uh, I've met or known or talked to or, or consider friends. It's interesting to hear the take on how they're they're coaching their portfolio companies. I'm hearing that a lot of layoffs are on the way uh, in tech and in freight tech. So there are, are certainly going to be uh, some layoffs and, and uh, downsizing. And I think the message is survival. I, I think, as you mentioned, right now in 2020, most of these venture capital-backed companies and, frankly, businesses across the whole landscape are going to get a pass. Q2 2020 and maybe Q3 – it, I think people are going to let you have a pass. If you miss your numbers, you're not going to get scorched. Now, if you run out of cash or you start your, your cash burn accelerates and you don't take corrective action, you're not going to get a pass. I think right now it's all survival, as you mentioned. That's what every investor is trying to tell their portfolio companies. I did talk to an investor that told me that their, their entire portfolio, all of their investments, uh, they want to see a 20% reduction in staff. This is not one of our investors. It's, it's, it's another uh, investor. But they're, they're directing their entire portfolio company to take 20% across the board reductions uh, uh, because they just want to survive at this point. And they're also saying that the window for future investment is probably close to 2022. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. We're definitely going to focus on conserving capital, but at the same time, um, when you can get uh, A-plus talent at every position possible, it's worth making that investment. We're going to do some optimization. We're going to look at uh, everybody that currently works at the company and figure out how we can make everyone that's currently at Forager extremely productive. And um, at the end of the day, there's only a few things you can be doing here. You can either be building the product or help build the product. You can help. You can be getting customers. You can be onboarding carriers or you can help with onboarding customers or onboarding carriers, or you can help our customers. If you're not doing one of those things or making sure that we get paid and, that, and whatnot, um, then there's something that we need to look at or we need to move people around and get people into the right position. Our investors have not told us to cut people. Um, they've told us to be cautious and conservative around um, how quickly we hire people after this raise and, 
and who we hire and how many we hire. Um, it is definitely a buyer's market from a hiring perspective, but, um, you know, there's, there's announcements that are happening in Chicago right now about big tech companies here that are doing layoffs. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely sad and unfortunate, but, um, yeah, it's really about keeping the burn down, but still building the product and not slowing down where we can control. Um, at the end of the day, the thing that I've told the team, there's a couple things we can control and there's one thing that we can't. We cannot control how much freight our customers ship. We can't go and call, you know, name your beer company and say, ship more beer. I promise they'll drink it. Um, you can't call the automotive companies and tell them to ship freight when they don't have any freight to ship. So you don't really have control over that. You could find more customers, but you don't have control over that. What you do have control over is how quickly you build product, how well you build it, and you could control how strong you could build out the supply side of your network. So when you come out of the other side of this and there's all these carriers that are sitting at home or that have a little bit more time on their hands so that you can talk to carriers more often, do that. So we're going to invest heavily in product in the team and in the supply side of our marketplace. Yeah, you can control your burn, too. And I, I've been through this. I, I ran a business that was in payments. Uh, that, uh, you know, we, we had good years, we had bad years, but it always felt like a struggle. We always felt like we were teetering on, uh, uh, going under. Uh, but it was interesting because I remember, uh, in the mid 2000s, I had a friend that had a telecom company. It was in these, they call it MVNOs, which are basically buying blocks of time and reselling it for prepaid wireless. But basically his business was never great, but he ended up doing really well because all of his competitors went out of business. You know, Metro PCS got bought out, uh, Boost Mobile got bought out, and he was one of these independent players and had the 7-Eleven account, and he just survived. And and basically, he's like, look, I just have to survive long enough to buy all my – and he eventually became one of the biggest because he bought all the, the assets out of the ones that had folded. Now he bought customer distribution. And payments, my old business was very similar in that where uh, for many, many years, we were just sort of prodded along. Uh, it was after I left, the company's done well, but it is because it was a survivor, and now it's thriving because it's been able to get market share through some of the picked up the pieces as the markets. I think every market goes through that. I think in freight and freight tech, particularly in the brokerage side, and maybe other avenues of freight, is there's been a lot of capital deployed. A lot of those businesses will die, will go out of business. And I think the name of the game is survival. You may not you may not be able to scale really fast right now or may not have to. You may be able to pick up the engineering talent, the people, the portfolio business by being a survivor, just waiting out the storm and letting some of these other guys go out. I think it's an interesting sort of uh, a dynamic that may begin the market. Yeah, it's it'll be it'll be interesting to see how people respond, um, how people react, and how they they kind of handle everything. Um, it's it's the thing is like with what's going on right now, this has literally never happened before. It's not. The Spanish flu, it's not World War II. It's like the whole planet is completely shut down right now in terms of people being inside and staying in their homes. And like, I go and take, you know, our dog out for a walk once, you know, a couple times a day and I don't see like more than three people. And so, um, we were, I think, I'm thinking back like two or three weeks when things really started to come to a, to pick up speed in terms of what was going on. And it was, you know, everyone's going to go work from home for two weeks. And then the CDC goes, let's not have anybody of more than 50 people gather for at least eight weeks. And then Andrew Cuomo is saying, the governor of New York is saying, 
Uh, it could be nine months that we're in full isolation. And so I've told our team to prepare for this being longer, not shorter. Um, It's why we sent everyone home with all of their equipment, their monitors, their desks. Um, We want people to be comfortable in their work environment right now. We're doing everything we can to make the, to at least keep the culture alive. And, and, you know, a lot of the leadership on the team have been great about working on that and focusing on that. Um, It's, it's, you know, having those Zoom happy hours, it's having those, uh, it's, it's getting, you know, uh, DoorDash credits or, or Grubhub credits to our employees to be able to get food delivered once or twice a week, uh, instead of like what we would normally have as breakfast in the office. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next week and the week after that. Um, you know, there's nobody that exists in this entire world that we could talk to that's been through this before. For so sure. the and only option is, is like to talk, like for me and you to talk about this stuff and like me to talk to other co-founders in Chicago about how they're going through all this and like just seeing a really kind of cool sharing of information across leadership at different businesses to figure out how to like best navigate this stuff. I mean, we're all in it together, even if we're competitors or, uh, you know, we're, we're in it together. You remember how precious, I mean, the, the thing that always touches me or, or hits me is when on Twitter people say, you know, I knew someone who passed and it becomes very real. You read these articles where like we're talking about life and death and we're talking about potentially millions of people worldwide dying and potentially even in the United States. I mean, it's a, it's a scary situation. And, uh, but it is also, uh, you know, there is comfort in having these conversations because you can sort of laugh at the ridiculousness of all of it in some ways, but it's, it is a very serious situation. I have also, you know, some of our employees had thought this was short term. You know, we had we have been like yourself have been impacted by it for many months. We've been reporting or tracking it. Um, so I think we were more in tune with what was happening than than most businesses, certainly in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, and I've but I've told our team, you need to plan this being at least May, if not longer, before we return to the office. Um, they just pushed the Olympics back. This is like. Well, my my instincts tell me it's probably going to be July, August, September before we see any normal normal see. But right now, I can guarantee we're not coming back in April. Like that's a fact. But it, it, my guess now the thing is interesting uh, is these event businesses. You know, we were we we were in many ways hoping uh, because we we have contracts in the city of Atlanta, so we had actually decided to cancel our event. Uh, sometime in late February, or early March. And we were waiting for the city of Atlanta to, cause you know, this is a seven figure penalty for, for, uh, and you can't get any, you can't get any of your deposits and stuff. And we have speaker contracts. So for us, it was like literally we needed the CDC to say you can't have an event for us to get refunds on all these deposits. Otherwise we're on the hook for them. So, uh, that helped, that helped for us, but we, Certainly, I don't know what happens with future events. I don't know if if uh, the event business for us is going to start back in the fall. We certainly hope it does come back to normal, but who knows? This could go on for months and months. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested by how that's going to work, and that makes more sense as to why we saw some other events like not get canceled uh, for a while um, in the industry. But I'm also curious, and I yeah, TIA I, actually, it was interesting. <laughs> TIA's message was pretty. It, I, I don't know that I would have constructed the same message. It, it felt a little, but anyways, I won't go into that. But it did feel weird. But I understood what they were waiting on. They needed the city of Austin to say no, so they could also get. Because you're talking about the fact, you know, these events, you typically are paying, 
you know, anywhere from half to 80% of your money up front. And you're on the hook for that. And you're on the hook for hotel blocks, hundreds of thousands of dollars in hotels that if nobody shows up, we have to pay for. And we don't, the problem is it's an asymmetrical risk because we're, we're on the hook for them. We get no revenue off of it. The hotels don't share. It's just for the convenience of the people that come. But you have to have the, you have to have a, a force majeure situation to get out of it. So that's sense. probably why you saw some of that. That very slow, you're like, why don't they get it? It's because they're waiting for <laughs> the government. <laughs> if someone leaves here and wants to go work at, at any, you know, name your brokerage and wants to go be a carrier up there, like, that's, I'm, we're not, you know, that's not something that's like super bothersome. Um, now calling around and calling existing customers and saying, hey, I used to work at Forager, you should come work with me here now, like, that's where that crosses the line and it violates their non-solicit. So, I think what what happened, what's happening right now with these layoffs, and then saying, uh-uh, "Sorry, you can't go get another job. Uh, you got to retrain and find a new industry." Like that's unfair to do to those people. I, I completely agree. I, I, you know, like like you said, going after customers uh, in us. You know, first of all, I, I'm not worried about a dozen reporters walking out day one. First of all, it's media businesses broadly or like as I even learned going out to the valley, it doesn't matter how, how big you are and how bad you are, it's very difficult to raise capital. They have to be profitable media businesses and it's just a different world and you know, you know report go ahead. You know the you know the only companies that could probably steal JP away from you. <laughs> we'll let JP decide that. Although I don't, I mean, I love JP and, and he's one of the most brilliant people I know. The question is him. And so we had him, uh, we have this product called re, research product called passport and JP has this, the, the problem you have with journalists period is they don't, they don't want to sell out, right? They don't want to do anything commercial because in their mind they're selling out, but we're like JP, we give him a hard time because him and the, the, uh, David who runs our sales effort, are always sort of in conflict with one another and stuff. And so one day we're like, JP, you have to, like, we dared him to call up a friend of his, uh, to ask him to, to buy a passport. And he's like, Oh no. And so he did it. And we're like, Holy crap, JP actually sold something. This is great. So, um, <laughs> but I can't see him being commercial ever. He, like what makes him so good is he isn't commercial. Like he, he doesn't sell out. So. Maybe we'll make him a sales rep or something. <laughs> I, when all goes south. Uh, when, when all advertising dollars uh, go go to zero, uh, and JP comes work for you, I want to see him as a freight broker talking to a driver, <laughs> wanting to haul a load across the border. Yeah, using him to go across the border. I'd like to see. You should do. You know what we should do? We should do a work. Uh, we should have JP go work in a brokerage one day, just to become a broker. Yeah, it's like undercover boss. That would be awesome, and he can do <laughs> he can write a report on his day inside a forager. What I would I think do it, okay. one of the brokers in Chattanooga. He wouldn't. It'd be weird with us, but do the get like get him into like act or uh, uh, what's it called uh, arrives office or, well, or Friday. Arrives got an office there, so we. Yeah. I want to put JP to work. I want to see him. We got to film that. It's like a reality. Get him on the phone. Get him on the phone. That's awesome. Well, look, Matt. I, I really appreciate. It. We're about out of time. I'd like to, you to give me three predictions for 2020 on what you're predicting is going to happen, and then give me a far-out prediction uh, for 21 in terms of just, like, completely off-the-wall crazy prediction. I mean, my completely off-the-wall prediction is Amazon buying Lyft. 
Uh, I would have said Uber, but Uber has their Uber Eats business and the freight business that like are generating revenue is however negative it is. Um, but uh, I guess three predictions for this year. One is going to be that we're going to have, um, this is going to be one of the worst experiences a lot of people have ever had in their entire life. Um, and we're going to see a lot of businesses fall apart, unfortunately, because of it. Um, on the flip side, though, we're going to see, uh, we're going to see some businesses that are going to move to remote and not ever come back from being remote. So that's going to tank the, uh, tank the, uh, the real estate industry. And speaking of real estate for prediction number two, we work, there's no way we work makes their way out of this whole thing at the end oh, of this. They're there's dead. no way. Like, community and short-term leases seems like a really bad business right now. For sure. Yeah. I, I'll second that. That was not even a stretch. You didn't even have to go very far on that one. <laughs> um, the third one, uh, I think we'll see, um, so XPO is not going to do their breakup right now. Um, I think we're going to see at least one really interesting, like, holy shit kind of, um, ac- acquisition happen in the industry. Um, whether it's one of the bigger tech guys buying a smaller brokerage or, um, a bigger brokerage buying a, you know, like a transfix potentially. Yeah, we'll see. I think, uh, I agree with most of what you said. Um, I agree with everything you said. I, I, I I'm going to be interested to see how the asset providers operate, particularly the larger folks and, and mid-sized carriers, because while a brokerage can always downsize people and has usually, except for rent and maybe some software services, they have very little sort of risk in the business and assets they have to, to, to deal with. Whereas the asset guys, if there's a specific downturn in, you know, April or anytime this year, they, there may be a lot of bankruptcies on the asset side. We've already seen that last year. I think it's going to come and we're going to see a ton this year. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. What, so what's your big prediction for the outlandish? I think we'll see a mega merger in on, I think we'll see a mega merger on the asset side. And I agree with you. I think we'll see a mega merger between managed logistics. The, I think we'll see a 3PL and uh, a more of an XBO type play with some asset purchases happening with a 3PL. Either a, a, a 3PL buying some asset base or asset, uh, light, it's still an asset light business with some assets. Or an asset carrier buying a very large sort of three PL. It's probably the other way around because they have more money. What about what about like a Home Depot or, or uh, uh, yeah, like a Home Depot buying somebody or one of the or a Walmart? I've never bought that. I, I just don't know why you would want to own a transportation company. Um, no, I, I, I just not, <laughs> it. it is that it is that Landis. Well, Matt, appreciate your time today. Uh, enjoy the lockdown for uh, and stay safe. Thank you. Talk to you soon.